0: This podcast contains explicit material. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to The Joy of Text, a monthly podcast about Judaism and sexuality. Coming up on this episode, we'll discuss gender dynamics in shul and the role of mechitza. That approach is saying that the only way for a man
1: to daven is by making women out of the room more invisible.
0: Then, we'll talk with Rabbi Mike Moskowitz, scholar in residence for trans and queer Jewish studies at Congregation Beit in Torah and author of the
2: book Textual Activism. Religion is about being able to be in a relationship with God. Judaism, I think, sees the Torah as containing the details of that relationship. But if we don't create space for people to be who they are, the most genuine and authentic versions of themselves, then no part of that is real.
0: And finally, the final word. That's all coming up after this quick word from our sponsor. With over 125 musmachim in the field, Yeshivat Chovevet Torah is committed to training a new generation of modern Orthodox rabbis. Jason,
3: you're a rabbi in
0: training. What's your perspective?
2: It was precisely the musmachim of Yeshiva HaTorah that drew me to the yeshiva. The tremendous diversity of work that they're engaged in and the underlying love of and commitment to the Jewish people really inspires me.
0: Thanks, Jason. If you'd like to apply or schedule a visit, go to YCtura.org. Welcome back to The Joy of Text. I'm Sarah Rosner-Lawrence, and I'm here with Dr. Batsheva Marcus, Clinical Director of Mays Women's Health. Hi, guys. It's like I miss us. We're, we don't get together for a long time, so I'm really mm-hmm. happy to see you guys. And I'm also here with Rabbi Dove Linzer, Rosh Yeshiva and president of Yeshiva Hovay Torah.
1: Hi, Sarah. Hi, Batsheva.
0: Here Hi, Rabbi Linzer. Okay, so our topic today is shul, also known as synagogue, and all of the interesting gender and sexual dynamics in shul that we don't usually talk about. So I'd love to launch our discussion right into the heart of the matter and talk a little bit about mechitza. Um, so for those of you who don't know, a mechitza is a partition in the sanctuary that separates men and women during services. There's obviously a ton to say about this, but I, I just wanted oh, to start yes. off. Oh, yes. There is a ton to say <laughs> about this. Oh, yes. Oh. Yeah, so so I just wanted to start off by kind of laying some, some groundwork and asking Rabbi Linzer, what is the purpose of a machitza?
1: So it's actually fascinating that there is no discussion in the Talmud about the requirement for a mechitza. Um And the first evidence we have of it comes up in the Geonic literature, which is the period right after the Talmud, like around the 7th century and onwards. Um, there's generally, obviously, in contemporary post an assumption that we always had a mechitza, even in Talmudic times, but some scholars actually question that, and there's conflicting evidence about the archaeological evidence. But nevertheless, like, from the time of the Geonim, it was assumed that men and women sit separately, but it wasn't really until, like, the last century that there was a feeling of a need to explain it and explain what the halakhic basis is, what the conceptual basis is for that. Uh, and there were really... I would say, uh, three camps in terms of explaining what the idea of a mochitsa is. The one which I think is most widely assumed is the idea of a concern of sexual thoughts, which is usually Mm -hmm. in terms of men. Men will be looking at women having sexual thoughts that will distract them from their davening, from their prayers.
4: It's expressed as men. Uh, Yeah.
1: Um, I mean, I, I don't think that the sources don't explicitly say, this is a concern that we're talking about in terms of men, but it's implicit that they're saying, you know, people – they're saying, yeah, you'll be looking at women is basically is, what the sources mm. say. So, yes. Is this an example of where it just wasn't ever talked about from the women's voice or you feel
4: like this is just an example of where they didn't think it would be a problem for women
1: I think it's the latter. I mean look the Talmud in general is super worried about sexual thoughts for men all the time never really talks about a concern about sexual thoughts for women now the reason might be that one of the concerns of sexual thoughts is that it leads to seminal emission and therefore it wasn't a concern for women whereas here that the problem is distraction during prayer right that could in theory be a concern for women but I think the Talmud in general feels that men are more stimulated sexually by what they see than women are. And actually, Bachel, I think there's some truth to that, right? That the whole visual, you know, erotic erotic arousal is much more true by men than by women.
4: So I think men tend to be more affected by visual cues than women. But I've just been thinking about this recently because my cousin was in West Africa looking into basically women's uh, birth control methods. And one of the reasons that these small towns don't want the women on birth control is because they feel like if you give them birth control, the women are going to go have sex with everybody. Mm-hmm. Like their underlying assumption are these women are have these tremendous sexual urges that have to be kept under control. So I, I I always find that amusing because I feel like it's so different than our, you know, our right. Chong-
1: but I think there's a difference between sexual urges and whether seeing the opposite sex will stimulate your, your you know, your sexual thinking. Like, there's a reason that the pornography industry is basically geared right. towards visual,
4: men. Visual cues definitely are more effective to men. But right. if you start with the assumption that women don't really have a sex drive at, per se, right. then you don't
0: have to worry about any cues. Right, right. Forget, right. And right. I'm not really that's sure a,
1: that's the Talmud's position on Okay, so. okay. All right. right. So, so that's yeah. one reason. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I guess like another question that that raises for me is like, are we assuming that men? Are like thinking about sex all the time to the extent that they can't focus on anything else ever, right? <laughs> like, like, so much so that we have to put a wall up. But
4: that's not to like I mean, protect their eyes. Right. I don't know. That's kind I of feel like that shows up, that kind of idea shows up a lot yeah, in does. the Quran, right? Like, it yes. Like, right.
1: Like the passages at the end of Kidushin, which are talking about, you know, the problems of yichud of secluding men and women together. Um, there's some amazing passages which talk about how even these great rabbis they saw a beautiful woman and they had this tremendous lust and they did crazy things in order to be with her. Um, so the Talmud pretty much thinks that men are ready to go at the drop of a hat, <laughs> <That's right.
3: laughs> and oh, that the right. and
1: that the and that the visual sort of you know uh, prompts prompts exactly yeah. will get them going.
4: But so. I, I feel like we interrupted you. You said there were three things, yes. and all you got yes. was, was that one. one. That's okay. fine. I mean, that's that's we jumped it. on you. I'm okay. happy to talk
1: about that more, but I'll say. The second one, and again, th- these framings are all very recent, like within the last 50 years, 100 years at the most. Um, so the second one is to use the model of the temple, the temple in Jerusalem, where there was a Ezrat Nashim. These are the terms we actually use, a women's courtyard. And this is a sad point. It wasn't called an Ezrat Gvarim, a men's courtyard, but it was called Ezrat Israel the courtyard of the Jews or of Israel, which sort of speaks to who is seen as the primary representatives of the community. It's like
4: that's Tzfilah, you know, when we say, right, before Mosav, haim Unishem, right? Right. Like, bless this congregation and their wives and their children. Exactly, exactly.
1: (laughs) Um, So there, you know, men and women were separate, and um, although the Talmudic commentators say that women could go into the men's space if they had to bring a sacrifice, but as for the general rule was that men and women were separate, So that's used as a model. Well, our our synagogues are like temples. We have to keep men and women separate without exactly explaining why. I'm just sort of saying we're basing ourselves on that model. But what's deeply disturbing to me for that model is that the primary place in the temple, the place of the sacrifices, the sanctified space, was where the men were. Where the women was, was, you know, according to halacha a place of very different sanctity where sacrifices were not brought. So that really sort of says that not just men and women are separate in prayer space or in worship space, but that men are in worship space. Worship space is male and women are sort of in the, you know, the social hall.
4: I get why it bothers you, but it's so present and like everywhere, right. like in the texts that you even notice it. Right, as but it's unusual. not the model that
1: I would want to embrace. Correct. If I have a choice of which model, and I'll just give you right. two relevant examples of what happens when you follow this. So I was told a story about a woman who said in their synagogue they were redoing the machitza, you know, or they were redoing the whole sanctuary, and there was discussions where to put the machitza. and they wanted a machitza more down the middle, or at least at the sides, and the rabbi said, no, The mechitza in the women's section has to be at the back the same way it was in the temple, that the women were in the back and the men were in the front, so, you know, back of the bus. So using that model and really assigning women as much as possible a very, you know, second-class status. Mm -hmm. Um, Another relevant issue comes up when they want to, again, replace the mechitza and some of the post you know, halachic authorities say, well, you can't turn a part of the men's section into a part of the women's section because you'll be lowering its level of sanctity. Yeah, right. That's so, really sad. Yeah, it is really it, sad. You know, sad. So that is not the approach uh, I want to embrace, even <laughs> though I understand totally where it's coming from. I, I,
4: a few years ago, there was a whole thing about like women coming to synagogue, making sure women get there on time. There were discussions and a very prominent rabbi said, but, you know, women should come to a shul, they should come to synagogue, but they have to understand that they're honored guests. Wow! Right, they're yeah. not. They're not the, the, the congregation. Things. And it, this was like it was a little horrifying to hear it. But I, I mean, I feel like it's better sometimes when these things come out and people articulate them because then we know what's
1: really going correct. on. Right. So what's the third? The third reason? one is, and this is what Rav Moshe Feinstein says, and this maybe is more relevant for our topic, is he's less concerned about sexual thoughts and he's more concerned about. Um, levity or seriousness, um, and he feels that in a co-ed space, there's more socializing, levity, maybe a little flirting. He doesn't say flirting, whereas in a single-sex space, there's more of a sense of seriousness of purpose. That so is so
4: irritating. Can I just say like- <laughs> That's the one look, that irritates yeah, you the no, most? No, they're all <laughs> but that, because, you know, we know that like, these bro clubs, right? Yes. Think about it, the whole view of these like yeah. places where, you know, guys get together and they drink and they feel like they don't have to be on good behavior because there's no women around like it's so antithetical to what it feels like reality
0: yeah and i was going to say having grown up going to all girls schools um (laughs) (laughs) all female spaces can also be a place of great levity i imagine (laughs) but i don't think they were worried about levity
1: on the female side yeah no i guess although if mosha does not overemphasize the male. His approach actually has a nice balance. One of the uh, the reason I like it is it's not about women in second class status, not about women as a distraction for men. It's about single sex as opposed to co ed space. So there's something people
4: more serious.
1: Yeah. Well, so even if we don't exactly identify with the reason, there's something nice that you know resonates with our contemporary values. The way I try to reframe the Rev Moshe is the issue about like single-sex schools and co-ed schools. That when, you know, I think studies have shown that in single-sex schools, people are less self-conscious of their behavior, right? Whereas yes. in co-ed schools, you're aware of the other and you're more self-conscious, which is why one works better for men and one for See? the women. We don't have to go into that. But <laughs> but the point yes. is, is that is that. In prayer, we don't want you to be self-conscious. We don't want you to be thinking about how you're being perceived by the other. So that, I think, is an interesting that argument interesting, for a separate sex as opposed to mixed sex space.
0: That is really interesting. And it also kind of begs a question for me, which is the specific design of our various machizas, mm-hmm. because a lot of shuls that I have gone to have a machiza that is, you know, low enough that everyone can see over it. Um, so... I, I guess I'm I'm wondering about... Or transparent. How, yeah, or transparent. I guess I'm wondering about how does that design fit into these well, different... Well, that's the ideas. dichotomy. One is it doesn't matter how
4: high it is or what you see if it's not about seeing, if it's about keeping people separate. Exactly. So that's a totally different perspective, right? Like, right. Exactly. So um, as
1: Moshe Feinstein said, so like... Um, Hungarian Jews follow the Hsam Sofer, who said that it's all about seeing and distracting and sexual thoughts. Some won't even walk into a synagogue with a balcony, because a balcony, you know, everybody's on display. It's the easiest to see, right, all, for the men to see all the women. No. What are you talking about? You really? look up, you see all the you women just there. You see the front row. Okay, but still, there's okay, nothing I'm blocking really, your sight. I anyway. Feel
4: like, I feel like balconies <laughs> are all about not
0: being able to be seen. Really? That's how I see Sarah. Yeah. I don't know. Well, <laughs> I I've seen some balconies where they have the balcony, but then there's also some A machita, kind of lattice or right. like some kind of thing to block the vision for the men so that, like, the women could see down, but the men can't yeah, really see and, up. but
4: even if you don't have something blocking, like, that is the moat. to my mind, balconies are where, like, you're totally out of the room. Unless somebody cranes their neck up, they're not uh-huh. going to see that there's even women there. Interesting. And if they want to see, they could probably maybe see the first row. <laughs> they certainly can't see all 20 rows. Well, like- I
1: grew up in a synagogue that had a balcony with stadium seating, and you had a pretty good view of all the women. Right. So- <laughs> oh, really? That's so, so anyway, I guess but we've the, never really been that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think you you go to shows that have a machitza on the floor that actually allows for a lot of sight, where a lot correct? of those mechitzas do not. Anyway, the point being that if your approach is exactly as you said, Batsheva, about sight, then anything that allows for sight is not good, so, which is why you'll see some synagogues, you know, have essentially a wall up to the ceiling, you know, really making it impossible. Whereas if it's about just not having a mixed, you know, a separate sex space and not having a co-ed space, then uh, yeah, then any division, even if it's easy to see, would really suffice.
4: So I want to like, address two quick things about the sight issue, because I feel like if you go the direction of you can't have a machete where you see over it, you're basically reinforcing two, I think, really problematic messages, sexual messages, which we've talked about before, but one of them is this idea that... Um, That, you know, if you see something and you want to have sex, you cannot control yourself. Like this idea that you're thinking about sex all the time, you need to have sex all the time. Um, Especially if we say men can't see women, but women Mm -hmm. can see men, then the message is men can't control themselves and women don't really have a sex drive. We don't have to worry about that. Again,
1: I would say don't have sexual thoughts but uh, in those circumstances, but okay.
4: Okay, but it's the same thing with clothing, when we go back to the clothing issues. Right, correct, correct. So I feel like those... I inadvertently, I'm not suggesting anybody's trying to underscore those messages, but those are complicated messages that we do get totally. often in the Orthodox community that's kind of an issue.
1: Right, it's like it's totally about the tsniut like you say, right? It's the way women dress distract men and then it becomes women's responsibility to cover up their bodies. And here you're just saying, even just seeing women, regardless of how they're dressed, distract men, and you have to make women invisible. That approach is saying that the only way for a man to daven is by making women out of the room more invisible. Right. right. And,
4: and I feel like the second thing that happens is a sort of level of hypersexuality that I think ha- boomerangs mm. when societies try to limit the interactions or the visualness of the other. You know, they always joke around about how in Victorian England, the piano legs had to be covered because right. piano <laughs> legs were considered too erotic. And yes. you're laughing, but I think it's true. Like yes. at some point, the more you pull people out of a situation, the more you eroticize them and
0: that becomes a problem. So I mm-hmm. just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah. That is really interesting. Yeah, I was going to raise that as a as a question, but I, I kind of wonder whether that's also a question for the setups where you can see over the mechitza because, mm-hmm. you know, there's... What's like, the question? Like meaning despite the fact that, that men and women are being separated but can still see over the mechitza, you might kind of get into this hypersexualized type of context right. where you're there's like... The
1: message of separating them is that women are sexual objects. You mean that sort of? Or just that there's a potential of sexual tension here and it's being highlighted by, by the by fact the that there's a mechitza. So can I,
4: I think all of us either daven regularly or always daven in a mm-hmm. in a of mechitza. Do do you guys feel any of that in a shul? Because I do not. Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like, look, I don't actually mind the machitza so much. I just do not feel like the machitza either heightens sexuality or needs to take away the sexuality. Like, this sort of interesting analogy that I often think about is is social dancing, right? Like, people have issues with social dancing mixed, and I get that. We can have another discussion about that another time. But one of the things that kills me is that it's clear to me when you're doing social dancing that there's different kinds of social dancing. Mm -hmm. You go into places where people are social dancing, and it's really like sexualized and you know there's just a lot going on that you maybe feel uncomfortable with because it d- it is very sexy and then there's social dancing that's very wholesome where like families are dancing together mm-hmm. and people are like just having a great time and groups of friends and you know lo- women are dancing and men are dancing and it just feels very wholesome and I think that that somehow that ha- can happen very naturally it's almost like if people were honest with themselves like I know people who don't like to talk about wanting to dominate with the family. And I don't think I've ever been in a shul where I felt like if you had those people dominate together, that it would be more sexualized. I'm, I'm just right. sort of asking you guys practically what you experience or think right. or well, see. Well,
1: I'll, I mean, I'll say, going back to Rav Moshe that I think... You know, sometimes there's a boys club and I get to like, you know, be palsy with people I otherwise wouldn't see, but it puts me, it forces me into a different space. If I was with my family and everybody's with their family, it would feel too mundane or just too, I don't know, it would orient me more um more horizontally than vertically if that makes sense really being able to focus on praying i'd sort of more be focused on my family unit or just it would feel too too mundane to you know as opposed to as opposed to when i'm in a space that clearly is a separate type of a space it forces me in a different zone so There's something for that.
4: So I think that's very dependent because it depends on, like, there's no question that my husband is better at davening than I am. Like, he's just better at, he's better at connecting to God. He's better at going to the zone. So my being with him would be helpful to me, possibly not helpful to him. (laughs) So when you describe your situation, I would say that maybe is... Dove situation, right. but not, that doesn't, no, no, I'm I know that it. you're not saying it's for everybody, but I, I feel like, you know, it's so dependent on your, you know, yeah. if I, when I dive next to my daughter, who's also an amazing dominer, like I also feel like my davening is better. Mm. She's not here a lot. So if I could dominate next to my husband, I think that would be helpful, mm. you know? So now I have to, now I can sit next to your wife Dove and she's <laughs> great. So that's good. But you know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like finding the zone in the place is really mm. important, but for us to make the assumption that it's about men or women, you know what I mean? Like we could have the quiet zone, you know, the no talking zone, that would be good. But that feels better to me, honestly, than this. I mean, this just feels very random.
0: What do you think? Right. Yeah. I, I I guess I kind of resonate with Rabbi Linzer's idea about kind of entering a separate space. That's different from the mundane everyday type of reality. Mm -hmm. Like, like, like I'm just picturing the, the dynamic of walking into like just a regular event at school and how I kind of automatically I'm like oh yeah this is normal like hey hey everyone you know kind of just start start chatting versus the feeling of walking into school during school time and and just mm-hmm. that sense of like there's something like different and kind of set aside about this space mm-hmm. feels holier um, does it feel holier I don't know if it feels holier but I guess I do resonate with the idea of having Just some kind of like special seating arrangement that you wouldn't have at any other time, Mm. Um, and that being kind of helpful in focusing you on the goal Mm. of that time, which is to like connect up and. So it could be if
1: the division was Cohane Levy Israel that would do it too. Yeah, like anything that was like a structured set seating, right?
0: Like I personally kind of do feel that way. I I I don't know that for me it's super important that it be men versus women, right? anything like that. But yeah, I, I do think there's something special about having a special setup. Yeah. I, sure. I, I
1: want to go back to the sexualizing aspect of it because you know, growing up and, you know, as teenagers, maybe as a male teenager, a lot of things are sexually arousing. But, you know, it, I don't know, I definitely felt that the that, as I told you, my synagogue had a whole stadium seating in a balcony, <laughs> that was distracting for me, you know, I mean, I didn't have to look up. But you know, if I did, you know, that was distracting. I don't know, I can say that it would have been less distracting. Had it had been a mixed space. I don't, I don't know if I could say that. But I will say that I was just recently speaking to somebody who said that, yeah, one of the reasons he this is a person that's quite modern and progressive in most ways but he said you know some of these issues about women taking a bigger role in the synagogue and a speaking role and so on, he said that he finds that sexually arousing and that he doesn't find it that way when, like I say, what, you find in your normal case, you're going to college, you know, whatever, a lecture and so on, he says no, like if, everybody, if it's a mixed space he doesn't find it that way, but when it's a separate space and then there's a woman that he's looking at, that that creates a different dynamic for him. Right,
4: the problem with that kind of argument is it's very tautological, right? Like if he got used to a space where women and we're doing all those things, then it would no longer be arousing. I agree. That goes back to the hypersexualization. Like if you are like if, if you're not used to women doing something, and now they're doing something that you don't think of them as doing, then you notice them more, and that could be more sexually, you know, right. arousing. You know, yeah. I I mean, I used to when I was a teenager, I always talked about how like seeing a guy with filling on was like That's very right. hot, yes, <laughs> because it wasn't something I was used to seeing. You know, uh-huh. so. I feel like it's almost like we're creating that reality. And, and I want to add, like, I'll go in a different direction. I know we can't address it, although I know somebody did write a question in about breastfeeding and shawl, but having separate spaces really does allow for a certain mm. certain freedom. Mm. So like breastfeeding in shul, which I'm a huge proponent of because I think women should come to shul and I think if you have infants, that's the only way to do it. Then I feel like you can do that if you're in a women's section. It's much more complicated if you were doing that in a mixed section. Mm. I mean, I, I might say it's okay both, but I know that it would be a more complicated issue to for people to address. And I think
0: that would be a great topic for us to t- cover sometime in the future. Yeah. Totally. So there's just one more thing that I wanted to acknowledge, um, which is that in our discussion so far, um, this has been a totally like heteronormative and cisnormative conversation. Yes, it has. And been. that yeah, and that there's there's really a whole set of questions and a whole discussion to be had about how machita impacts. And bisexual people Mm. in our communities, and how if then all the questions are turned on their head, right? right? Right. Totally, and then also, super importantly, how this impacts trans and gender non conforming people in Mm. our communities who might not feel comfortable sitting on either side of the machitza or who might feel that they you know, grew up going to the synagogue, sitting on one side of the Mechitza, and now they've transitioned and they want to sit on the other side of the Mechitza.
1: Yeah, so let me say a word, let me say a word about the gay and the transgender issue. I think that from the perspective of gay men and women, it's hard to imagine, even if they wanted to embrace the implicit sort of, uh, you know, values here, Uh, how they would do it, because separate space won't do it, mixed space won't do it. Either way, you're amongst people that you might find, you know, sexually attractive. So I'm not even sure how it can be done. But it does, the existence of the mechitza does reinforce, you know, the... Uh, heteronormative and gender binary assumptions of halachan of the community—that's true. Regardless, as far you know, as far as transgender is concerned, there is an interesting debate in post in general. Like, do you, how do you categorize somebody who's transgender? Are we able to embrace halachically, you know, their new gender or as opposed to the gender they were born with? But when it comes to the issue of mechitza, there's developing a pretty strong consensus that because that's about these issues of does the space feel single-sex or co-ed? Are you? distracted or not, it really doesn't matter if you call the person male or female. What matters is how the person is presenting. So somebody who presents male will sit on the male side. Somebody who presents female will sit on the female side. And that's pretty much like the developing consensus around transgender and mechitza
0: right yeah and then i guess doesn't
1: deal with gender queer right yeah yeah
0: i <laughs> right. guess it doesn't really address like gender nonconforming people who don't feel like they fit in either side right. but um i know i know
1: you yeah. know about the tri yeah yeah so right. there's a uh, places that sometimes have a third section which is mixed which could both be for people who don't like the whole idea of altogether but also could deal with people that are like gender nonconforming.
0: um yeah so i guess just just one more kind of um, area to extend this conversation into is um, into the non prayer spaces like Kiddush, right? Mm-hmm. So there's kind of a trope that people go to Kiddush to mix and mingle, to flirt, keep an eye out for potential dating partners. Um, <laughs> so I, I do you that's think that's great. a problem? Okay. I, mean, I feel like where do we expect people to
4: meet each other? Right. If not like in these like wholesome environments and a shul kiddush seems like the perfect place to do it. And even more so, I mean, I do think the Kiddish space is uh, like an incredible space for people to meet each other. And I think, um, again, that goes back to that, you know, that small sidebar I made about mixed dancing like there's ways to do things and there's like a wholesome lovely way to meet people of the opposite sex and do a little bit of flirting that's right, fine Right. that's different than you know hypersexualization
1: right well first of all I'll say that personally I think when I was younger and more I don't know uh extreme or black and white it really upset me this whole flirting this does not belong in a synagogue and <laughs> so on even at the kiddish yeah oh, totally even at uh, the kiddish yeah but really? you know you didn't know me when I was that no, no, no that's fine but I yeah, <laughs> right but, uh, Where
4: did you think you were going to meet your spouse? Uh, yeah, I don't
1: know. Any, I would get set <laughs> up. Um, okay. Anyway, but um, but now I sort of totally feel like it's, you know, so somebody's going to marry a nice Jewish boy or girl. Oh, what's the, what's what's bad with that? You Correct. Know? And then go like to the, shul. And then go to <laughs> right. shul. Uh, I will say in terms of the sources, though, this is interesting, that one of the sources that are quoted, I said the Talmud doesn't speak at all about mechitza, but one of the sources that's used, you know, to support the idea of is when it speaks about the uh, party that they had in the Beis HaMikdash on uh, Sukkot, the Simchat Beit HaShoeva, yeah. that they would keep the men and the women separate. The party like
4: no other party. Exactly. Right? Yeah. <laughs> they keep the men
1: and the women separate because there was too much levity. Right. So that's not about prayer. It's about a party. So that I so guess. a party is, right, a party is a little different than That's a, like Hashtiak Right, in than a, is, a Kiddush you know, you <laughs> and some nice conversation. Right. right. But it is speaking about that issue, about sexualizing, you know, a sexualized space right in a sanctuary or a, close to a sanctuary. Sanctuary.
4: again have either of you ever been at a kiddish that you thought got out of control no no
3: <laughs> no i mean i feel like let's just be
4: real here for a minute right. guys yeah, right. yeah totally right. right exactly and on that note probably everybody should like come to our shul for
1: kiddish <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> all right okay. next up we'll hear from rabbi mike moskowitz but first a quick word from our sponsor
3: hi my name is rabbi eliezer lawrence and I'm a certified Mohel. I serve the New York metropolitan area and work with Jewish families and conversion candidates of all identities, affiliations, and orientations, both in the Orthodox community and beyond. My practice is built on ethos of safety and spirituality for baby and guests. I support the joy of texts because I believe that Torah and sexual health are not mutually exclusive and both are strengthened when examined through a shared lens. For more information about me or my practice, you can visit my website at familymohel.com, or you can give me a call at 201-694-1801. In the meantime, enjoy the podcast, and Bishaat tovah.
0: Joining us today is Rabbi Mike Moskowitz, scholar in residence for trans and queer Jewish studies at Congregation Eitz Kat Torah, and author of the book Textual Activism. Rabbi Moskowitz, we are so excited and honored to have you here with us today.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Yeah. Okay, so I guess just to start off, um, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be an activist and an advocate for Um, Trans inclusion in the Jewish community
2: sure borrowing language from the queer community I was assigned secular and then came out as you were assigned secular That's great. society. That's great. Okay, and then I came out as Orthodox in high school Uh, For those who knew me as a kid. They told me they always knew where did you grow up? Richmond, Virginia, (laughs) okay And then went on a right-wing trajectory for about 23 years Um, I learned in the mirror in Yushalayim and I learned in Lakewood and BMG for a number of years And then uh, when I was a rabbi at Columbia University and at the old Broadway Synagogue in Harlem, I had students and congregants uh, of trans experience and I had someone in my family transition. And that was really the first time I'd ever thought about my own gender uh, since I was a kid and told which bathroom to use. And um, it took a little bit of time to reach a point to know that I just don't know what that experience is like and that being cis is just a function of a limited awareness of gender and uh, that's how it all got
1: started. Could you say, I know what cis means, but are some of our listeners who might not
2: Sure, it's Latin for side of or same, as opposed to trans, one who has transitioned, gone from one side to the other in terms of kind of the binary poles of gender. Uh, So cis is just somebody who identifies in the way in which they were assigned gender-wise.
4: Let me just translate that. (laughs) So if you were born female and always felt female and felt comfortable being female and think of yourself as female, you are cis. Fair enough. Okay, good. (laughs) And
2: so too for the masculine.
4: Exactly. Okay. So was it a dramatic shift for you or was it a very gradual kind of shift for you?
2: It felt very familiar in that at 17 and thinking about whether or not I had the faith to take on the precarity to really alter my choices based on how I saw the world and God. um, At 37, it felt uh, eerily familiar like – Okay, I feel called to be a certain human, to act in a certain way, to really come out very publicly as an ally to the trans community, but there are going to be consequences. And so, like, do I believe enough?
4: And when, we, where, what were you doing at that point?
2: I was a rabbi in Harlem. Uh, I was a...
4: An Orthodox rabbi and an Orthodox yeah, Orthodox mm-hmm.
2: rabbi, Orthodox synagogue. And were you um, pushed to this because of a member of your family? Or was I was this not independent pushed to this. Of that. I would say that, like, there were two stages. The first was um, somebody in my family transitioned, and that got me to think about it for the first time. Um, but I was doing work privately. I was writing for Keshet under a pseudonym. Mm-hmm. Um, my synagogue within the trans community became um, known as a, as a safe place where uh, spaces that were uh, gendered, were gender-affirming of the way in which people identified, so to, in terms of ritual practice, giving men of trans experience in Aaliyah, et etc.
4: Sorry, I'm not going to interrupt, but I am interrupting, and I apologize. <laughs> but but you're saying your shul was got, getting to be known, your synagogue was getting to be known as a safe place, but for that to be the case, you already must have been in a place where you were aware enough to try to make it a safe place. That's right.
2: And in, and in Harlem, where the rest of the world wasn't really looking, it was pretty much under the radar. Right. Um, and Colombia is a pretty... Liberal progressive place, and so we had some folks there uh, of trans experience who came. So I was um, doing this work very privately, very one on one. Was writing under a pseudonym Um, for Keshet Was myself trying to gain some sort of traction Uh, when the person in my family told me that they uh, were not the gender that I had assumed they were. I asked them, uh, like, how do you know? I know how I'm a guy, Uh, but that's not the same way that you would know that you're a guy. So like, how do you know? And uh, it took me a long time to really get to a place a long time. It took about three weeks, which for me is a long <laughs> oh time. Oh, my God. I, was, I was, thinking was thinking about it obsessively, yeah. right? Like, what do you mean? Like, I don't understand. Like, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean? And like normally after doing that a few hundred times, you know, and uh, the rotations can be a few hundred times a minute, right? Um, you gain some sort of movement. And I just didn't. And then it was really for me a pivotal moment where I was like, right, because I'm not trans. I can't understand what that's like. Um, but not being able to understand that is actually, I think, Both a prerequisite for deeper knowledge um, and an indicator on some level of knowledge, right? We have in our tradition "adul yada," right? Until you know that you don't know, right? And that there's spaces of the unknown. So um, the moment for me that I felt kind of uh, called to pivot and be very public about this was when I had a student at Columbia um, who was um, had transitioned both from secular to religious and also from one gender to another and was very much uh, in the closet about it. Um, he passed and uh, was really struggling. And one day I got a text from him that uh, he was really having a hard time and he wasn't sure if he was going to like what to do about it. And it was just clear to me that there was this void. Um, There was no rabbinic voice. There was no, um, nobody was like trying to allow for our synagogues to be the literal sanctuaries they are for those who are suffering in silence and in solitude. And so that's really when I felt that I couldn't be silent anymore and gave a speech. uh, It'll be three years, this Hanukkah, where I um, kind of declared that this is what I thought um, was really Where necessary. did you get this? Label? At the synagogue. Uh, there's, uh-huh. a YouTube, there's a YouTube, there's a video on Facebook about it, but it was kind of my coming out speech. I think a lot about like the divine revelation is God's coming out speech. <laughs> uh, and now God uh, has is hidden because we forced God back into the closet, <laughs> right? Um, I think that like taking language from the queer community is actually really helpful because this is not about a queer experience or a straight experience. It's really about, it's not even a human experience. It's part of that, I think on a soul level need to be seen and understood the measure says that the emptiness and void at the beginning of the genesis narrative was really god's loneliness um and so it's not good for us to be alone because we're creating the image of god it's not good for god to be alone so um so
4: have there been ramifications for you
2: there were huge ramifications i uh within a few weeks was no longer the rabbi of the synagogue i was also no longer the rabbi um the the organizations that were funding my position at Columbia which were right-wing Jewish outreach organizations um and I couldn't find another job um I was in the city for another year looking um couldn't find anything were
4: you surprised at that
2: I was surprised you were surprised I was surprised that it happened in the middle of the year I was surprised that there wasn't a place to go after that uh these weren't my first jobs I got my first Mijo almost 20 years ago I've been doing things in the world and found it really strange and surprising that, like, nobody wanted me.
4: Right. <laughs> that's, that must, I mean, that's such a deep way to describe it, and it must have felt that way. Um, what I'm trying to get here is, were people upset because you said we have to accept trans people as human beings and treat them properly? Or were you making very specific halakhic suggestions or legal, Jewish legal suggestions that were freaking people out?
2: It's been my consistent experience that when people push back it's not about jewish law it's about people feeling comfortable and people is always defined as those with privilege and entitlement and acceptance and that this makes people uncomfortable um i write about it in my book when i got asked to uh come to see the rabbi of the synagogue in lakewood the shul the shtibel um that he told me because i was sitting with somebody uh in the men's section of the trans experience and uh he said, Look, people are complaining. I said, Yeah, but what's the issue? It says like this over here. And he says, No, 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 this isn't about halacha. This is about people's comfort. And but what uh, were they
4: complaining about? That,
2: the, that the, it was like inappropriate for somebody who was assigned female to sit in the men's section. Oh, even oh that, okay. Right. Right, as,
4: right. Not that you were sitting with them. In other words, the, the,
2: that they were sitting with me.
4: I I gotcha. They, they didn't want them sitting in that section at That's all. Correct. And even you though they invited they them to sit and, with you. Yes. yes, exactly.
2: And how uh, did they know? Some people just uh, know. Some people perhaps had heard, um, uh-huh. but there are people who um, are known as what's called stealth that they're actually very much closeted, and um, they don't want people to know that maybe they were assigned the, the different gender. Um, and there's certain people who um, are able to really go about the world in a way that nobody. Would ever assume that they weren't assigned with the gender that they present, and that's known as passing. They pass as right. If you look at me, I look like you pass as male Orthodox. Yeah. No, uh, no, it's rabbi, I think right?
4: that's actually an important thing for us to say. It's a podcast where nobody's meeting you in right. person, although maybe we'll have pictures on our website. But you do. You look like a Haredi rabbi, right? You have a black hat and a beard and a black jacket or coat, and so that it, it is. Yeah. it is. There's some a little bit of constant, you know, dissonant, you know, cognitive dissonance.
2: Right. Right. So I don't, I get asked actually not infrequently if I'm trans uh-huh. uh, because people assume, huh. um, but not because of the way in which I look, but rather because of the work that I do mm-hmm. as an ally. Um, and so somebody who is, uh, so this person passes as, and so, um, and it's been really consistent that, um, and I think that the synagogue also felt that it just didn't want to be known as the place where, as opposed to any, yeah, as opposed to anything specific or controversial.
1: So can you tell us a little bit about your book? And I, I, it's an interesting title, Textual Activism. So is that a question about going back to text and trying to use it in ways that support your activism? Could you say
2: something about that? Sure. Uh, I think Judaism is a religion of action, right? It's not enough just to love peace, but we also have to pursue it. Um, and I think there's a way in which the voice of the Torah hasn't been allowed to speak in present tense. It's almost like we pushed pause. 1880 was a good year for us. And I know that that might sound a little strange as somebody that. who presents as I present. Yes. I
4: was going to say, yes. <laughs> right.
2: 1880
4: was a great year for
2: a great, fashion. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was, you know, post the most recent cholera outbreak. Right. Was, right. was, right, right, things right. were good in Europe, but um, you know, women couldn't vote. All Black the is things. the new black. Right. So, um, but I think that the world's has changed in a lot of ways, which I think forced different answers, right? That for the Tehira to be alive, for it to really have uh, a position, have Das Tehira, it needs to be able to recognize the reality. To say differently, you can't in a Shilin until you know the Metzius, right? You can't in it properly, at least. You can't answer a halachic question properly until you know the reality, right? And so, for example, when electricity was first invented, um, There were big questions in Jewish law, like, how are we going to interface with that? And it took some time. Transitions are icky. They're neither here nor there. It's adolescence. It's uncoupling. It's retirement. And the world is going through a transition now, right? In fact, uh, on Shabbos, the most intense type of muxa is um, demonstrated by these raisins that haven't gotten there yet. So they're grapes that are like mid-transition.
1: Intense mukhs and the Gemara. Yeah. Right. And so nobody in the contemporary world knows what that's
2: intense, talking about. Like intensely
4: <laughs> problematic on right. the Sabbath. Exactly. Right.
2: Because, and we don't, we have no like framework for that because we've never seen it because it has no utility, right? Yes. Because it's neither here nor there. And it's in this space that I think speaks emblematically for those who are in this journey, not knowing who or what mm. or how. Mm. Um, and so there's a way in which I think Jewish law right now, uh, for example, the RCA, the Rabbinical Council of America, where I used to be a member, so they asked me to resign, um, is not doing trans, uh, conversions for people of trans experience. In part because there's a lack of clarity, like what are they supposed to do? So I think if a person doesn't know, right, that's fair. Um, but then the the work is to provide, you know, a figure it out. To figure it out, as opposed right, to To avoid
1: saying, it. So let me ask you a question. You know, you present not only male, but very Haredi. Um, but you know, you're know, you known because of your very outspoken activism in a very particular way. So do you feel that your work is gaining traction within the uh, quote-unquote normal or moder- mainstream, however you call it, Orthodox community, even the modern Orthodox community, or do you feel you're being somewhat pigeonholed?
2: So I feel like my work is, is, uh, is very broad, much more um, than just in even Orthodox circles. The work I do around uh, trans allyship and advocacy is interdenominational and also uh, interfaith. I've written a lot hmm. in both queer spaces and also in um, Baptist news and other uh, religious spaces because this is uh, trans rights are human rights. This is not about um, any one person's particular child. It's about God's children. And if we care about the liberation of queer folks, um, the most oppressed queer folks, certainly in Jewish spaces, are in um, the Orthodox and the ultra-Orthodox communities. And so I think there's a real sense of communal responsibility, even if it's not my community. Like Mm. we care about what's happening in Rwanda, right? Mm Because that's not okay. mm -hmm. So I think that in many different directions, people are interested in. And um, because there's a way in which this is new and the way in which it's manifesting, the need for language is really important. Mm -hmm. So much of traditional traditional Judaism um, is kind of a gendered-based spiritual practice, and it speaks to perhaps gender existing in some part on a soul level, right? A man's arm and a woman's arm aren't different in terms of one uh, needing black boxes made out of leather. Um, mm-hmm. And, right, if we think about the person uh, that was created by Malikim, uh that person was uh, before the split, Right. So I think that of my God is an all-gendered God as opposed to a gender-neutral God. Um, and we're created in the image of God and God that has no image. So for those who have, like, a hard time using plural pronouns, right? So Genesis 127, God does, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, according to Rashi, right? That it was uh, both the male and the female together. So uh, I think it's really helpful for the broader world to get access to our perspective mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. this. Um, and... I think orthodoxy is invested in a level of retention that mandates a recalibration to fit the contours of the people who are there, right? In rabbi school, we're taught that we're not supposed to answer questions, but people.
3: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm,
2: mm -hmm. And so one way to frame the question is, does orthodoxy want the queer people who are there to stay? And if so, then what's the response? Mm -hmm. Also, looking you at you
4: do realize, as parts of the Orthodox community you might say, now, yeah, okay. The
2: other part of this that I think has resonance with people in the Orthodox community as being urgent is the rabbinic malpractice of asking queer folks to marry straight. Wow, and uh, yeah.
4: Yeah, no, I I, I just want to make sure we separate between sexual identity and sexual
1: attraction. You could be a transgender male and still interested in men and not women. They're two
2: different tracks. So who a person is when they go to sleep is a function of... Uh, gender identity, who a person wants to go to sleep with is a function of sexual orientation or attraction.
4: Right. So you're a woman, you transitioned to be a male, but you are a woman who was attracted to men. Now you're a man who is attracted to men. So I've just raised that because you said people want them to marry. People are being pushed into marriages that are...
2: Heteronormative.
4: Heteronormative. Exactly. So in other words... However you started out and however you ended up, you may not be attracted to the sex of the person they want you to marry. Yeah. The
2: most common question I get, yes. the most common phone call I receive is um, from somebody, often a male, although it's not exclusively, who knew that they were gay before they got married. And when the Rosh Hashiva was pushing them for Shadokim, they would say something like, no, you don't understand. It's not Pshad is, I'm not attracted to her. Pshad is like, I'm not attracted to any hers. Like, mm-hmm. I'm gay. I like men. And there's some version of it's how do you know you've never been with a woman before or it's in the sayin, take one for the team or yeah. it is what it is. Right. Um, and so I think when the world was a less safe place and people didn't have options, people either suffered in silence or they did things on the side. Today, people have choices. And so I had a case with a woman who's married for 36 hours. Lil <laughs> He came up with some sort of excuse. And then uh the second day, he was like, look, I just...
4: He said that. He <laughs> said. The first night, he
2: said, look, I'm tired. I have a headache. Right. right? And the second night, he's like, look, I, the truth is, I just, I can't do this. I'm gay. Right. And I'm really sorry. I feel horrible, but I spoke to my Rosh Hashiva. And Rosh Hashiva said just to do it. And so I think there's a lot of compassion from one partner to another that like, Nebuch, like, you know, what can you do? Right. But like for those who are orchestrating this, right? And um, it's horrific. Everybody loses. It's and horrific
4: for the partner. It's too, horrific for everybody because a lot of these women, let's just say it's a woman, they're very fragile. They haven't had sex before either. They start feeling like terrible about themselves. Yeah, it's horrible it's for horrible. everybody.
2: Everybody's a loser. And if it's not thirty-six hours, and it's you know three months, or it's three years, or, or it's thirty years, and you have you know kids, you know the Jerusalem Open House, which is an LGBT drop-in center in Jerusalem, has um, recognized that there's an increase in HIV today's World AIDS Day. Uh, December 1st um, and there's an increase in um, those contracting HIV in the hetero community because not everybody in the hetero community is actually faithful and hetero um, and so even though in the queer community those numbers are down so if we think about the deleterious effects of having people being closeted in Lakewood, a boy came to me yeshiva guy, learned in brisk his father still is sitting in kail, uh a few rows behind him he's gay, he has not yet married a woman, he's pushing it off he's in his late 20s and he told me that in Lakewood, the non-Jewish gay men know not to date Jewish from guys because even though they present as or will say that they're single, they're all married to women. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. And in fact, another, just a quick shahaya, a very uh, that everybody knows. His daughter called me. She's in her late 20s. She wanted a shidduch with another from lesbian woman because that's single, because she said uh, all of the from lesbians that she knows are all married to men and yeah. they have these telling wow. groups and so it exists right. and we're denying the reality of and we're erasing the experience of So what I'm
1: hearing is your activism around trans has really spread to an activism around LGBTQ more broadly we speaking. Yeah. Religion right.
2: is about being able to be in a relationship with God. Judaism I think sees the Torah as containing the details of that relationship. But if we don't create space for people to be who they are, the most genuine and authentic versions of themselves, then mm-hmm. no part of that is real.
0: Yeah, so so I just have one one last question, which is that we've been talking about mechitza in this episode, which can obviously pose a really painful challenge for um, people of trans experience um, in our communities. So what do you think that Orthodox jewels should be thinking about in order to make their spaces more welcoming and affirming for trans and gender nonconforming people in their communities?
2: There's a meta question about where gender lies, and I think different waves of feminism have intersected in a way that has resulted in different trends of folks transitioning from one gender uh, to another. Um, And I think the the most current wave sees gender as being more real than some of the previous waves. That being said, um, if men and women are exactly the same, then there's no space to transition where that line of authentic gender exists and where it's just a societal construct that needs to be dismantled, I think is still not yet clear. When it comes to uh, having separate spaces for praying, um, there's a way in which it can be very gender affirming if we allow, not just to invite, but to welcome folks of trans experience to be able to sit in spaces that can affirm their gender identity. For those who fit into the binary that's convenient. For those right. who don't, mm-hmm. for those who are genderqueer or gender nonconforming or
4: or um, not sure where they fit yet,
2: or have some sort of fluidity that they don't always present in the same way or ever in the binaries. Um, I think having a third section is actually really convenient. I was just in Toronto. Uh, it's called a tri Um, My understanding of the halacha is that if a person um, is dabding With their gender on one side of the mechitza, what's happening on the other side does not affect theirs. So whether a person feels uncomfortable or not is different. Uh, You know, in the mirror they would say the halach is kevei the mitzias, right? So if you have a mechitza, it's kosher, and it is, um, I think, an alternative uh, to create a third space, um, a paralleled third space, not front back, but horizontal with equal access. And I think that it's also a way in which it can support those who would not normally dive in a place that has segregated seating.
0: Right. Thank you so much for that. Um, is there anything else you would like to share with us that we haven't already asked
2: you? Sure. No one's life is ever hypothetical. God does not put extra people in this world. And for those who are listening that are queer or genderqueer, uh, God loves you. We love you. We need you. We want you. Be the change that you want to see. This is the best it's ever been. And um, this is not an issue with God or the Torah or even the Masayurah. This is a function of people. And the way in which we're able to affect systemic change is by making it personal. Um, so don't go anywhere. <laughs> Thank you. That
4: was you you so really beautiful.
2: Yeah, that was yeah. really, really Thank me- moving. Thank, Thank you. you.
0: So everyone should feel free to check out the new book, Textual Activism. I believe it's available on Amazon.
2: It's a collection of articles um, from the last year and a half, um, both on gender issues, uh, consent as spiritual practice, immigration, climate change. But mainly, wow. that's very broad. <laughs> the world's very broken. <laughs> Next up,
0: the final word. But first, here's a quick word from our sponsor.
4: At Maze Health, we know that if you're having sexual problems, it can have a significant impact on your life and on your relationship. We also know that these problems are not all in your head, and it's important for you to know that pain, low libido, erection, or orgasm problems can all be successfully resolved. Maze is the only treatment center of its kind in the area, addressing both the physical and emotional sources of sexual difficulties. If you're a man or a woman experiencing sexual problems, please don't go another day feeling like there is no solution. Visit us at www.mazehealth.com.
0: And now for the final word. Um, Last episode, we were talking about infertility, and we asked our listeners to send us personal stories and personal anecdotes about infertility and miscarriage. Um, So we got a lot of responses. Thank you all so, so much for writing in. Um, And we have just a couple that, that we wanted to share with all of you as the final word this week. Um, so this first one is an excerpt from a listener who says, I am listening to the infertility issue right now. And the episode is just perfect. 18 months ago, I delivered a stillborn baby boy. I was a few days before my due date when I lost the baby. And there were so many questions I didn't have answers to Jewishly. Batsheva, when you talked about trauma and losses or infertility, it it was right on the nose. My therapist talks about me having PTSD. I was lucky that I got pregnant immediately after, and after a very stressful pregnancy, I have a baby boy who is six months old. But that first Rosh Hashanah was just awful. We expected to go to shul with a baby, and instead, we saw all of the other babies. Yeah. We didn't know if we should say Yisker during Yom Kippur. It has just been such a journey, and as your guest says, it is not one that goes away, and I'm only a little bit into it. I'm so glad that we're now talking about it so much within the Jewish community, and I'm so glad that that we're working on making this part of everybody's awareness. Thank you. Hmm.
4: You know, I just want to thank the person who wrote in. Um, i want to start to cry. Um, it's, it was very brave of you to write in and this is such a painful topic. We, we totally get that. And, um, we appreciate your taking the time to share your experiences and want to know that we're thinking thank about you. you.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Um, now this, this second, um, letter we got in kind of has a little bit of a different perspective. Um, so he writes, I'm a longtime listener of the Joy of Text. I just listened to the episode on infertility and and I'm on the verge of tears. My twin sister and I were the result of, of, of in vitro fertilization. I know how much my parents struggled and how much of a burden and trauma the years were that they were trying. I appreciate you bringing fertility issues to the forefront of the Jewish conversation, both because it is a deeply personal issue for me and because I know how much of an emotional strain fertility issues can be on a couple. One additional resource to be aware of is the PUA Institute, which provides halachic counseling for couples with infertility. Thank you so much to everyone who who helps make the joy of text possible and continue doing your fantastic work. Mm. That's beautiful.
4: You know, I don't know how you guys feel, but I feel like when we get letters like this, it just makes like this is all worthwhile. Yeah, totally, you know, I know totally. this is a labor of love for all of us, but... Um, mm. Keep writing to us. Um, it's important.
1: And we don't usually hear from the product, you know, from somebody who was like, you usually are hearing about the parents that are struggling, but here's somebody that he and his sister came into the world because of the help that his parents were able to get.
4: It's
0: amazing.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. So um, thank you all so, so much for, for, for writing in and for sharing your stories. Um, And thank you to all of the um, listeners who wrote in who we don't have time to to share everyone's, but um, we really really appreciate and appreciate it and definitely keep those comments coming. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you so much to our guest Rabbi Mike Moskowitz. This episode of The Joy of Text was recorded by Mike Hurst, was produced and edited by Max Hollander and is a project of the Lindenbaum Center at YCT. If you have questions or comments you'd like to share with us, you can do so anonymously at www.thejoyoftext.org. The Joy of Text is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any podcast app. If you like what you hear, show us your support by giving us a five-star rating and stay up to date with our latest episodes and live events by following us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram.